This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests. It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg. Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Charlie Pellet. Coming up this hour, we'll look back at 2023 and ahead to the new year with a focus on markets, the economy, and the Fed. I think the, the amount of cuts we're going to get is not going to be 160 basis points. I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of crazy to think we're going to get that kind of size cuts. We'll hear from Michael Landsberg, Chief Investment Officer at Landsberg Bennett Private Wealth. Also, kindness in the workplace. Kindness is measurable, and it's a very wise, smart business tactic. We've seen time and again through the science and the data when companies are investing into kindness, both internally and externally, how they communicate to their consumers. It is good for the bottom line. That's the bottom line message. We'll hear from Jacqueline Lindsay, the CEO of kindness.org. But first, Kathy Wood is not afraid of big concentrated bets, specifically in technology names such as Tesla. She is the founder and chief investment officer of ARC Investment Management, and she spoke with our Carol Masser, Katie Greifeld, and Manus Cranny. Well, I've got to ask you about the flows into the funds, which is obviously you've got a bit of a victory lap going on at the moment, but this is the first year of outflows. Um, have those outflows stopped? You've had a great performance in the back part of this year. Have the outflows stopped? Um, and has that bleed stopped? Yes, well, we were very gratified at our asset retention in 21 and 22. Um, in fact, we had net inflows, if you combine both years, of more than $18 billion. Uh, and this year, uh, one w- might expect uh, that those who averaged down into the, the very steep declines that we were seeing in 22 especially, uh, might take some profit. So we have had, uh, I know for for our flagship strategy, it's um, roughly $500 million in outflows. Maybe for all of our strategies, $1.8 million. So maybe 10% of the inflows that we enjoyed during 21 and 22. So again, we're very gratified and grateful to our, our clients for uh, the support that we continue to receive. So has the, has the outflow stopped? Uh, We have had uh, days of, on balance, very recently, yes. Uh, And I think part of this is many people do uh, uh, tax management toward the end of the year. And so some of the outflows might have been associated with uh, with, uh, clients who um, got in at a high cost base and were just harvesting some tax losses. But I think we're through that. Do you find it a little surprising, though, Kathy, considering the run-up? Or do you... I'm curious about the conversations you do have with investors considering the year that you're having and then to see those flows. It's got to be a little disheartening. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Actually, we put out a piece for uh, Resolute, our distributor, who, um, and and we basically showed 
to uh, them, if you rebalance our strategy when there have been big moves one way or the other, if you rebalance regularly or based on a rule like uh, when, when the fund's up 15% relative to everything else, take some profits. And what uh, it showed, that study showed that if you are disciplined that way, that um, over any rolling five-year uh, period, um, it is highly likely, uh, almost uh, 100%, I'm not quite sure if it's quite that high, but uh, that, uh, uh, that you will beat the market, uh, meaning as measured by the NASDAQ or the S&P, over a rolling five-year period. And so uh, a lot of our funds are with advisors who are very sophisticated and uh, responded somewhat, perhaps in this tax, tax management uh, part of the year, to that message. Kathy. I feel like we can't talk, we have to talk about Tesla and Elon Musk. And I know you just had a conversation on Twitter X. Um, this has been, I think from day one, right? In terms of you starting out, that you've had this investment in Tesla. And I remember when we first talked and you were getting started, you talked about him being the next Thomas Edison he, and how his vehicles would turn the US economy upside down. Um, having said that, there's an evolution and the EV world has changed. How are you thinking? It's still a top holding. How are you thinking about the Tesla story right now? The world is evolving, actually, um, uh, I think, even m more closely to what we expected. Uh, because we expected a lot of traditional auto manufacturers to see the writing on the wall and rush as quickly as they could into scaling big time into electric vehicles. And what has happened recently? Both GM and Ford have said, uh, we're stepping back. Uh, we're not going to do this until uh, it's profitable. The problem with that is in order to be profitable, they need to scale. That's how this works. These are learning curves that they are uh, riding down, and those are expressed in cost declines. So the fact that they're pulling back means they're more sh there's more share for Tesla and others who choose to go for it. And uh, Kathy, I want to keep the conversation going on Elon Musk, but I want to bring it to the ARK Venture Fund. Of course, uh, it's not an ETF. You invest in private companies, et cetera, in there. And you take a look at the portfolio. You have SpaceX in there, and you also have X, formerly known as Twitter. And in July, you had told the Wall Street Journal that you had written down your Twitter stake by 47%. Fill us in on the past couple of months. Have you written it down further, or how has that changed? No, I think it's uh, still there. Um, you know, uh, we have to be very careful. This is an interval fund. It is a 40-act fund. And we have to mark to market every day. Uh, the good news is our clients can get in and have access to these amazing companies for just $500, and they get quarterly liquidity. So, so that's the good news. The markdowns are simply, you know, if we see in the secondary market employee stock trading at a steep discount, discount, we have to take that into account. If we see others in the more traditional asset management work, world, like uh, Fidelity and others, uh, marking their holdings down, uh, we need to take that into consideration during our daily mark-to-market. So it's an abundance of caution. We have a five-year investment time horizon. Do mm -hmm. we think 
that's where X belongs in terms of valuations? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. A roughly 20-ish billion dollar uh, valuation for what we believe truly will become uh, the everything app. Think WeChat Pay. Uh, Elon started his entrepreneurial career in the payments industry, and he's been thinking about this for a long time. He now has money transmitter licenses in more than half of all of the states, mm-hmm. uh, which we learned on Twitter Spaces or on X Spaces, I should say, uh, the other day when we had our interview with him. So that's exciting. He's going for it. He's going for it. Uh, we'll see if that one lands. But let's talk a little bit more about the private markets because obviously the private credit market has gotten a lot of attention right now. You're looking at the private markets through this interval fund that you have. When you think about the opportunities there on that five-year horizon that you have, do you see more so in the public markets or in the private markets right now? Uh, well, uh, now that we've had this very nice run this year, um, we think the answer to that question is in the private markets. They're close. They're close. What's fascinating to us is that the public markets have been leading the private markets for the past three years. As our funds were uh, were falling in 21, uh, private evaluations were going to all-time highs along with the NASDAQ. They were taking their cues, I suppose, from the NASDAQ. But real innovation, if you looked at our portfolios, uh, was starting to um, revalue to the downside, and even more so in 2022. We are still seeing major down rounds taking place in the private markets. And I'm always surprised at, at this sort of thing because you would think that the private markets lead the public markets. That has not been the case in the last few years. Hey, Kathy, I've got to be honest with you. I think whenever we think about Elon Musk, brilliant, but also erratic. And I'm curious how you think about Elon, the individuals versus Elon, the companies he's creating, the things he's doing. Because I think if there is time, any other CEO of a major publicly held company would, I think it's safe to say, not be able to get away with a lot of what he has done. So help us educate us how you make sense of it, of someone you have followed, talked with for many years. Well, first of all, uh, very often we just look at what he does, not exactly what he's saying, which can often be a distraction, or it can be an advertisement for his cars or for X or or for SpaceX uh, and so forth. So, um, But we have a, a scoring system um, as we are evaluating companies and their founders and their management teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there are six metrics, and one of them is moat and barriers to entry. And uh, mm-hmm. I think Elon is a maestro of raising barriers to entry with innovation, which that is so much faster than anyone else. Why? Because he's so first principles physics driven in his uh, analysis of how to approach a new idea. Kathy Wood, the founder and chief investment officer of ARC Investment Management. When we continue, a look back at 2023 with Matt Miskin of John Hancock Investment Management. Really, the last two months defined 2023 markets, <laughs> and it was all really around uh, Powell's pivot. I'm Charlie Pellet, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. 
Welcome back. Bloomberg Best continues. I'm Charlie Pellet. Happy New Year and still to come, the economic outlook for 2024. Q4 so far, you know, we've seen signs of slowing, but there is still a lot of momentum. We'll hear from Jennifer Lee, senior economist at BMO Nesbitt Burns. But first, the market outlook for 2024. Matt Miskin is co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock Investment Management, and he was interviewed by our Carol Masser, Katie Greifeld, and Manus Cranny. There's a lot that could come at us at 2024, but as you look back at 2023, are there, I don't know, trends, um, narratives that you think will, no doubt about it, carry uh, over into 2024? Yeah, thanks, Carol. And really, the last two months defined 2023 markets. (laughs) And it was all really around uh, Powell's pivot. So in September, they were forecasting another rate hike in December. Uh, and then actually no rate cuts into 2024. That really changed significantly. So now, of course, in November, he went to no hike in December. And then in December, really pivoted. I think about the pivot foot. I mean, it almost looked like a travel here where that pivot foot moved because they they did a one. Powell did a 180 from his tone in September to November. Do you think that that's where we go next? And I mean, if you look at some of the perform, you, you look at some of the performance on the U.S. equity markets, just just top line. More than 50% of the move was done in the last two months. You said the optimism is already very much baked into stocks, both in earnings and estimates and valuations. The math, the math for you is not compelling. What does that do? Do I stall? Do I draw down? What what happens? Do we shudder in January? Because the bond market is convinced we're on a slice and dice from the Fed. Right. Yeah, I mean, Russell 2000 earnings are down 17% this year. Prices are up 17 I mean, it, one of the ones I love the most is, is technology. And Carol was talking about earnings and loving earnings. I love earnings, too. <laughs> technology earnings are up about 5% this year. That's not bad. S&P 500 tech, 5%. Actually, that beats most of the world in earnings. The companies are up price-wise 55%. So that just shows you how much this has been multiple expansion versus earnings. It's all about Powell this year. And it really all came down to the last two months in this pivot. I don't think that next year is going to be that meaningful as it relates to everything relied to the Fed. I think fundamentals going to matter more. Economic data is going to matter more. And I think the Fed is in a tough position because the soft data has led you blind this year. It's all been you've had to really focus on the hard data. The thing is, the hard data lags the soft data. And so they just have to wait. They have to be data dependent, man. (laughs) Just like you said. So. Um, right now, they're going to wait on that, and I think they're going to have to wait right to the last minute to cut, and I think that may be too late, and they're going to have to cut more aggressively than actually the market thinks. Well, Matt, I don't really like earnings. I really like uh, talking <laughs> about the macro, and it's been convenient for me because, to your point, you've seen equities be, really be driven uh, by the macro, even at the single stock level. But I want to talk about the different psychology between the equity market and the bond market because I love this line in your note that stocks are stories, bonds are math. Talk us through that a little bit what you mean there yeah so with the bond market you know it's going to be your income and income right now even though it's changed a lot in the last two months i mean when we were writing that you know a month ago and we were like five six percent in high quality bonds this is amazing um we've been looking for high quality income at these levels for years and finally we're getting it it's still about four to five percent um, we think actually 4 to 5% is an income stream where you can depend on that and high-quality bonds will be an attractive return stream into next year. Matt Miskin, co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock Investment Management, speaking with our Carol Masser, Katie Greifeld, and Manus Cranny. 
Now, what about the economic outlook and the Federal Reserve in the new year? Jennifer Lee is senior economist at BMO Nesbitt Burns, and she was interviewed by our Paul Sweeney and Caroline Hyde. It has been an extraordinary year. If you think about the way in which basically every economist got it wrong in the direction of travel, of well, how far we'd go in terms of borrowing costs going higher. They never anticipated quite the ramp up. But now we see every economist thinking that we're going to be cutting in extraordinary degree. Well, the market see at least 1.5 basis, well, 150 basis points, 1.5% for the next year. We feel as though the market's getting ahead of itself when it comes to overall Federal Reserve policy, or what do you make of it? Yes, I think the market has, uh, is a little bit ahead of itself, um, uh, to put it gently. Uh, there's still some talk about you know earlier earlier rate cuts for, for the Federal Reserve, but I don't see how that's going to happen. You know, short of something dramatic happening, you know, we don't look. We but we do look. We do look for rate cuts to come around the middle part of the year at about 100 basis points. In total, um, it's just, just we've, we've gotten so much momentum still building up. I mean, even though we saw third quarter growth, and it seems like forever ago, you know, revised down last week for to 4.9%, that's still a heck of a strong number. You know, there's no denying that. And that was, by the way, the very first estimate that the that the BEA came out was was 4.9%. So 4.9%. Q4 so far, you know, we've seen signs of slowing, but there is still a lot of momentum. And, um, you know, we, again, it seems like forever ago, but just last week we saw the personal spending and income data. Holy cow, still very strong, you know, 0.3% real spending. And it was basically across the board. And I, I always look at the, the key things, you know, that people could be spending on or would not be spending on if they're really, really worried. And there's still more spending on dining out. There's a lot more spending on recreational goods and vehicles, things like that, that, you know, if things were really, really tough, you wouldn't be doing all that. And there's still some spending on that front. So we are still seeing some decent momentum moving into the fourth quarter and into the turn of the year. So again, earlier rate cuts, I think, are just overblown. Those, uh, those, those, uh, that that sort of talk. Interesting. So if we do see still that resilience, if we do see ultimately also maybe wage inflation being sustained, do you do you ultimately think that the Fed will have to become more? joined up in its approach of messaging as well, because that's where the whiplash seems to be coming in. We have Fed Chair Powell speaking of perhaps this necessity to start cutting in 2024, and then a couple of Fed speak come out and try and wheel us back in terms of how far, how fast. Are we getting a consistent message? Um, up until last, up until like recently, I would say yes, but now it's like I don't, I don't know what happened at that Fed meeting. But you know, obviously, Fed Chair Powell, I feel, took you know through the markets for a loop when he you know started talking about the fact that rate cuts had entered the discussion. You know, um, um, and he didn't really push back on too much of the questioning that he got during the uh, uh, during the the, the, the Q and A. So that's why we saw that parade of every single, I believe it was every single Fed official coming out shortly after saying, "Hold up." <laughs> Way too soon. Discussion of earlier rate cuts is, is too premature. You know, we still have to see a lot more data. Everything is going, you know, again, we're looking at the totality of the data as we keep talking about all the time. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that before we can see the official rate cuts. But, you know, it's going to, ha- you know, we do believe it's going to happen again, mid-, mid part of 2024, which is around the corner at this point. But the fact that, you know, things are slowly slowing and the fact that inflation is coming down, you know, it's, it's a good place to be in right now. And this is something that I don't think any of us would have anticipated a year ago. So, Jennifer, can we officially take the recession talk off the table? Um, we were, I'm going to say this again, we've always been in that soft landing category. And uh, um, 
we had, I think, a, a negative print at one point last year, but we took that all out. You know, again, this is like the whole soft landing, no landing, any landing kind of scenario. You know, we still see things slowing, obviously, um, around the turn of this year. And, of you know, this is going to prompt those Fed rate cuts to, to come along around June. Or, around June. Um, so, but I don't think a hard landing um, or actual recession is right now looks like it's in the cards. But, you know, things can change very, very quickly a lot of still a lot of uncertainty that's playing out out there as as the as 2024 begins so we'll see how all that plays out but as of right now you know we are not looking for an actual full-fledged recession jennifer lee senior economist at bemo nesbitt burns speaking with paul sweeney and caroline hyde still to come more on the outlook for 2024 we'll hear from ed perks chief investment officer at franklin templeton when we look you know more broadly at where where valuations are today particularly in light with the expectations for the economy moving into 2024 you know we look at something like investment grade corporate yields uh, today a little bit above 5.1 percent for investment grade corporate bonds using the bloomberg uh, corporate bond index i'm charlie pellet and this is bloomberg Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 99.1, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM 121, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. Welcome back. Bloomberg Best continues. I'm Charlie Pellet. Still to come, kindness in the workplace. I like to remind everyone it is, it's seen as a soft skill, um, but it's measurable and it's tangible. And we now have enough data to show why it matters. We'll hear from Jacqueline Lindsay, the CEO of kindness.org. Well, certainly kindness in the form of rate cuts is a major focus for investors into the new year amid questions about the pace and extent of those cuts. Ed Perks is chief investment officer at Franklin Templeton, and he spoke with our Paul Sweeney and Caroline Hyde. And we have just been hearing about some of, you know, the interesting ramifications of a market that has just ripped high in the last few months. And ultimately, with these very heady high, well, feels like decent back valuations, still companies can't come public. But the fundamental picture has been one of a market wanting to anticipate cuts and then some. 150 basis points seems to be where the market's at for next year. Where do you lie on that scale? Yeah, you know, I think we really think there's still a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And, and as it relates directly to um, interest rate cuts by the Federal Reserve next year, it really comes down to, in our opinion, really comes down to the why uh, we might see that cutting. And, you know, there are, there are a broad range of scenarios. On, on the one hand, it, it could be that the economy remains resilient and the Fed starts to ease, maybe not at the pace that some investors are discounting, but but nonetheless starts to ease to prevent policy from just becoming more restrictive. So there is some element of normalization that will need to take place. Now, you know, on the other hand, can we entirely rule out a more difficult economic scenario that uh, that does lead to a more aggressive uh, easing uh, by the Fed to uh, to offset that economic weakness? All right, Ed, I know you focus on income in some of your portfolios here and you've got a neighbor by the name of Tim Cook, and his Apple only pays a half a percent dividend yield. I assume you go down to Cupertino regularly and berate him for not paying a higher dividend. 
What's your thoughts on Apple and kind of their use of cash and shouldn't they pay a higher dividend? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a, a topic for, you know, a lot of the uh, the mega cap tech companies. They certainly have the balance sheets to support it. And we've always been an advocate for broadening your investor base. And, you know, there there are investors like ourselves that, that do seek income. Now, we can do other things, uh, debt securities. We can yep. um, look for ways to structure um, synthetic type convertibles and still have a, a, an attractive way to play these type companies. But, yeah, we, we very much think that uh, uh, all of these companies could pay. Uh, could pay higher dividends and, and thus broaden their investor base. So, Ed, what do you make of this last eight, nine weeks in this market? It's been a big, big move here in risk on, you know, stocks up just big time across the board, yields pulling down dramatically from 5%, got to 10-year now at 3.9%. Does it feel like the market's out over its skis here a little bit? Yeah, you know, this has largely been, in our opinion, an unwind of of some of the damage that was done in September and October. So really, if you look at something like the 10-year Treasury, um, it's just really going back to kind of where we were in August. So, you know, there obviously were reasons for that sell-off. The sell-off was very dramatic. We peaked at nearly 5% in the 10-year, and now that's that's largely been been unwound. So, you know, we think that's been the the key, you know, element of, of kind of what's driven it. You know, but when we look you know, more broadly at where, where valuations are today, particularly in light with the expectations for the economy moving into 2024. You know, we look at something like investment grade corporate yields uh, today, a little bit above 5.1% for investment grade corporate bonds using the Bloomberg uh, corporate bond index. Uh, you compare that to the prior decade, actually even going back to the end of 2009, the average is closer to 340. So, you know, we still think there's very attractive returns for income investors in buying assets like investment grade corporate bonds. And that return will be both uh, the coupon, the carry that you get attractive income for the first time in, in uh, well over a decade. And uh, and this normalization, we ultimately think 10 year treasuries can uh, over the next 12 to 18 months trade, uh, trade a bit lower and that'll deliver nice total return for those kind of assets. Ed Perks, Chief Investment Officer at Franklin Templeton. Well, certainly rate cuts are on the minds of investors with the arrival of the new year. Michael Landsberg is partner and Chief Investment Officer at Landsberg Bennett Private Wealth. He spoke with our Carol Masser and Manus Cranny. As you look at some of the performance in these equity markets year to date, there wasn't any other better trade than being just long the S&P. Uh, as you look into 2024, how much of the bullishness is fully priced in equities with 160 basis points of cuts assumed by the market? I'm going to probably um, punt a little bit on the 160 basis points. I think that's wishful uh, thinking by a lot of people on the street. But obviously, the S&P did well this year, concentrated in a few stocks. That has to broaden. It's not healthy for such a small amount of stocks to drive returns. Great that we own them, but realistically, we've got to look for for other places uh, to be able to generate returns. I think there's going to be a um, not that seven again. I think there's going to be some basically some uh, a lot of variation in returns from those seven um, in terms of what goes on. And I think the the amount of cuts we're going to get is not going to be 160 basis points. I think that's uh, you know that's kind of crazy to think we're going to get that kind of size cuts. And I think actually things in the Middle East are going to be interesting here as oil goes higher, uh, inflation goes higher. And does that mean that uh, potentially that they, they, they punt those, those cuts even longer? So if we don't get those number of cuts, to what extent uh, is that our performance uh, going to continue in, in tech? 
I think part of what happened in, in, in this year was everybody got excited about AI and a lot of things rallied just because they put AI in their speeches and in their, in their, in their earnings recordings. Um, in reality, I think this is going to be a year to see who actually drives uh, earnings based on AI. So I think there's going to be some stocks that do very well um, that have the AI story really embedded in their business and they're actually making money from it. I think it's not going to be a soundbite year where, where 2023, if you just said um, AI, your, your stocks seem to rally. I think it's going to have to be really shown this year to, to what that drives. I also think cybersecurity will continue to do well. As AI gets bigger and bigger, cybersecurity has to protect everybody from AI. So I think those sectors are going to do well. Um, I think earnings at the end of the day are going to drive what tech does. It'd be nice to see the, you know, the Fed do what the Fed does, but we're anticipating maybe three cuts not to happen until probably the summer just given the fact that um, you know, we're getting closer to the Fed's target, but we're not to the Fed's target. So it seems to me that we're very deliberate with raising rates. I don't see them about facing right away and starting cutting rates next month. That's what I find interesting, and I want to go back to that. You said, right, three cuts in, in 2024, but not until July. That's what you just said. So pushing it off, um, because the Fed wants to be convinced, right, before it starts cutting rates, that it truly has inflation in check. Absolutely. And I think what, what I look would be, the only kind of fly in my ointment would be if data comes out that's really awful, that we're heading into some type of a, of a recession, a bigger recession, then maybe you get a cut earlier than that. But I think if things play out the way Powell wants, I think you're going to see a summer cut, maybe the July meeting, um, because that allows them to make sure that what they're doing is working, that we're continuing. Again, yeah, we're seeing oil tick up. Oil is a huge factor. And we know that even though inflation seems to be under control, Wall Street's cheering, you know, the rest of Main Street isn't really cheering. I mean, right. sentiment's awful. Yeah. I think they're going to want to wait to make sure they got it done before they, because cutting rates may, may increase inflation. I'm not happy when I fill up the gas tank. My daughter's like, she's 20. She's like, why does everything cost so much? I'm like, mm. exactly. Having said that, I want to go to, do we need to see some kind of recession in order for some more of the fluff to come out of the economy? and in order for new growth or new cyclical round of growth to start? I think it depends on what you're going to define recession as. What we've had about three or four negative earnings growth quarters for the S&P. I think it was three. Apple's had four in a row of kind of negative earnings growth. So I think you're going to see what I would call rolling recessions. I don't think we're going to have this massive you know, recession because I, I think the labor market's good enough to not see that. But I think you're going to see some softness or some sectors that you want to avoid. And I think there's some sectors that you're going to want to be invested in with the idea that rates are starting to come down, you know, maybe slower than people want. But I don't know if we're going to get the, uh, the, the recession where everybody wants to run. And then now, now we, we go to the playbook. I think you're seeing these rolling recessions you know, with different sectors doing poorly in different environments. And I think that continues in 24. Michael Landsberg of Landsberg Bennett Private Wealth Management on the outlook for the new year. Still to come, the virtue of corporate kindness. I want to put kindness on the public agenda. I want to send a signal that it can be embraced as a powerful business tool. And it's not fluffy, weak, soft, feminine, or any of these other narratives that perpetuate it being seen as um, anti-good for companies, if you will. Jacqueline Lindsay of Kindness.org will get into the business of kindness in the workplace. That's next. I'm Charlie Pellet, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. 
Bloomberg Best continues. I'm Charlie Pellet. Happy New Year. And as we wrap up this hour, a focus on kindness, specifically how it plays into corporate culture. Our Paul Sweeney and Caroline Hyde caught up with Brent Ridge, the co-founder of Beekman 1802, and Jacqueline Lindsay, the CEO of Kindness.org. Jacqueline, I want to start with you because you've been working with brands that we know, 23andMe, Nextdoor, Ulta Beauty, for example, Unilever, thinking about how you can activate kindness internally. Now, for those who are now thinking, okay, I'm going to switch off my radio or TV because they're getting into (laughs) some soft stuff like kindness. What's your retort to that? Kindness is measurable, and it's a very wise, smart business tactic. We've seen time and again through the science and the data when companies are investing into kindness, both internally and externally, how they communicate to their consumers, it is um, good for the bottom line. That's the bottom line message. And let's talk about your bottom line over at Beekman then, Brent. Ultimately, you're, you're about in the business of sensitive skin, therefore sensitivity. I can see the read across from a marketing perspective. But why actually commit some of your hard-earned money to this sort of research? Why enact it? Why use yourself as a guinea pig too? Well, you know, as you say, we are a skin health company, and we were actually founded 15 years ago after one act of kindness. So, uh, we uh, one, you know, we were helping another neighbor in our community, and that's how our company started. So, kindness has always been very important in the DNA of our company, um, and we knew that we had seen outsized results in the industry in terms of net promoter score value, increased customer acquisition costs, increased, um, you know, uh, LTV of our customers. And aside from having good products, we knew that it was the kindness that was leading to those outsized results. And by working with kindness.org for the first time ever, we're able to develop a customized tool that can measure the amount of kindness in any organization, which in that organization can compare back to their own results. What is it that you're starting to see resonate with businesses because you've been already taking this to children and that I can see as a parent the way in which I'm trying to think about our kids having thoughts other than their own and ways in which ultimately the mental health impact of their own kindness can help them I can understand why we're teaching it in schools what made you click that actually this was something this was purposeful within a business I want to put kindness on the public agenda. I want to send a signal that it can be embraced as a powerful business tool. And it's not fluffy, weak, soft, feminine, or any of these other narratives that perpetuate it being seen as um, anti-good for companies, if you will. And uh, when I thought about what we know from the science, what our own research has shown us at kindness.org, and to Brent's point, it's linked to happiness, it's linked to well-being. There's so much to validate why this is good for you. And at the end of a study we did with six companies, uh, again, across multiple sectors, we saw that employees cared more about kindness than they did income. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't pay people well, um, but it's saying that you can pay all you want. And if it's an unkind culture, the retention and the things that you seek to focus on when it comes to growing your business, to scaling your business, to seeing success, in the end, it won't really matter if you're not investing into your team and their well-being. And so it's really trying to make a business case for companies, meeting people where they spend the most time. For children, that's in classrooms. And for adults, that's where they're working. Brent, I don't know how this kind of fits in with working from home and hybrid and the whole discussion of coming back to work. In in your experience, in the last several years, how has this kind of maybe changed a little bit? Well, certainly in our company, it has made us uh, much more cohesive and able to work 
um, from home better um, than probably a lot of other companies who don't have a culture based on kindness. And echoing what Jacqueline said, you know, we spend three quarters of our adult lives basically in the workplace. And so if we can measure and affect um, the workplace with kindness, that's going to have tremendous ripple effect throughout the entire culture in our in our communities, in our homes. What we do at work has a profound impact on the rest of our lives. Brent Ridge, the co-founder of Beekman 1802, and Jacqueline Lindsay, the CEO of kindness.org. And that'll do it for this hour. Thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Best. Happy New Year. I'm Charlie Pellet, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.